Know the Source on One Radio Network. Well, by the sound of that music, it must be uh, either a Wednesday or a Saturday afternoon. And I think it's Wednesday. I'm not that lost, although I sometimes stay that way. Very pleasant good evening to you. It's the 28th of May, 2008, and it is the real world of money with currency historian and nationally recognized expert on the U.S. monetary system for the past 30 years and a good friend who lives in Joyzeville, Mr. Andrew Goss. Good evening, sir. Are you staying out of trouble? I am indeed. Are you really? Yep, doing a lot of reading, reading, reading. What are you reading? What are we reading? Oh, I'm, I have this real exciting piece of reading I've been doing lately, uh, published by the BIS. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Only you would read something yeah. by the BIS. Yeah, Monetary and Economic Department, uh, Over-the-Counter Derivatives Market Activity for the Second Half of 2007. <laughs> it's a fascinating hot read. Uh, you got to make sure you're wired on caffeine before you start it because it will put you to sleep and you're reading it because well you know i've wor- i've worried about the over-the-counter derivatives market uh for quite some time you know it's uh growing at a alarming rate in fact uh we talked about the credit default swaps you remember those yes i do yes yeah so they've increased 36 percent to a total of 58 trillion dollars <laughs> and tell everybody what credit default swaps are well that's essentially uh, i uh, give you a mortgage and there's a risk that you might default and so as a result that's not a triple a mortgage but if i set up a separate company <laughs> and then that company guarantees that you won't default then i've now swapped the risk of that credit default over to that guy and so as a result now that paper is triple a or it's rated better because it has insurance. If the uh, party that took the loan defaults, why then somebody else pays the bill. Why, why would the second guy guarantee that? I mean, why would, why would somebody... For a premium? Oh, to just make some money on the deal. Yeah, for a premium. Uh, in fact, uh, this is a, one of the things I, I've, I've discovered that really troubled me, is that it's a lot of the pension funds that have been taking this premium as a way to generate income. You know, huge uh, organizations that are supposed to be saving money for folks' retirements are instead uh, accepting this premium for a credit default risk that, okay, you know, might not happen, but boy, if it happens, it's huge. I see. And aren't aren't pension funds supposed to be really pensioning for the people who are putting their hard-earned bucks in there? I mean, don't don't they have some kind of responsibility to protect the, the workers of Ford or GM or, or anybody, for as, that matter. Yeah, as do mutual funds and money market funds and every other fund that has been taking up these CDSs. Uh, so it, it, this is the thing. I mean, it's a, uh, what troubles me about this is that we have a, a $58 trillion notional value. And remember, there's only $14 trillion in money. So, so 58... if you could just forget the trillion part and think of it in these terms, we have debts of $58, and there's only $14 everywhere. Uh-huh. So this $58 trillion, the notional debt you're talking about, all these kind of risky derivative-type uh, 
pieces of paper that have been bundled and sold and resold and all of that? Yeah, that's just that one category, credit default swaps. Credit default swaps. 58 in just that one category. Just that one category. Okay, you ready for now? The, the hottest number on this entire sheet is wow. $596 trillion. That's the total size of the derivatives market worldwide. Almost $600 trillion? <laughs> now, just to get an idea, uh, wow. you, it was about $350 trillion two years prior to that. It's doubled in two years. Yes, yes, yes. See, that, yes. that, that means there's something going on there. Yeah, what's going on is that in order to take advantage of micro moves, we make macro bets. And so if, hmm. if you can make money with, you know, a fraction of a cent with a trillion dollars worth of something, well, then, my goodness, you can sure make a little more with $600 trillion. That's very well put. And, <laughs> and it's done by people who, can we say, the worst that's going to happen to them, they'll get fired. Yeah. Yeah, like that, those uh, rogue traders, if you will, that took down, you know, venerable institutions uh, such as Barings, you know, a four or five hundred year old merchant bank gets itself caught up in these types of transactions because it's that, that infinite idea that if you go to Las Vegas with an unlimited amount of money and you're at the roulette wheel and you're betting black or red, um, you know, eventually it's going to come up. So all you have to have is enough money to keep making the same bet until it hits. And that's the, the theory and the logic um, that these guys employ when they buy stuff. So and, they, and these guys are making bets because they're hoping to score big, and then they'll get a bonus, and they're, they're betting with other people's money. Not even right. their company's money. They're betting with people they don't even know, pension funds and stuff like okay, that. Okay, so now as we go a little further, we find what's been allowed to occur in this environment is they allow hedge funds to gather up a couple of hundred billion dollars from rich people and then using that as leverage borrow another trillion dollars or whatever that total might be depending on what they're betting on. You know, if they place that entire bet on some very long and speculative contract, hmm. their gains could be enormous. But at the same time, their losses could wipe out the entire... Uh, ability of their partners to pay and and then who pays then it's the people well i thought you guys were covering my risk well we're not we're broke now <laughs> we lost all of our 200 billion and we don't have any other uh, money this is the the house of cards that's been established as all these pyramided organizations think they're covering each mm -hmm. other's uh, assets <laughs> now you're you're not what we call a gloom and doomer matter of fact your latest newsletter is called uh, The End Is Not Near. The End Is Not Near. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But what is your perception after looking at this for nearly well, over 35 years, really? You've been really studying this, this massive $700 trillion. I mean, is this something that could, could be of colossal proportions if, if all this possible perfect storm happens, that we're in for something unprecedented or am i getting too dramatic well you know it could be unprecedented in fact uh, this uh, one of the other uh, pieces i got to pull off of uh, the bis's site here talks about um, the worst 
banking environment since the Great Depression of 1929. And we've talked about it on previous shows, how for the first time in ever, <laughs> you know, in the 35 years of numbers that I've been following, I've never seen the bank's reserves uh, go negative. So what I've been doing for the last week, really, is trying to ferret out the names, you know? And for our for our listeners, you're always need, looking for the dead bodies. We gosh. need to know the names <laughs> of these institutions, and the names that I'm finding are just frightening to me. The names of which institutions that are at the top of the oh my gosh, who failed, <laughs> who went broke? I mean, Bear Stearns is one thing we all know that. I mean, we knew that name if we were an investment. Uh, minded person but let's face it joe blow doesn't have a credit card issued by bear stearns and you know bear stearns is not uh, uh holding home mortgages bear stearns is not holding bank accounts checking accounts bear stearns was an investment bank uh the commercial banks are the ones in trouble the big names the big you know, boys the big names like well okay for our listeners <clears throat> top top of the list uh, uh companies like citigroup uh, jp morgan Bank of America. Of course, Countrywide sits on that list. So these are the most troubled institutions. Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo. These are the types these of These are names. the big guys. These are the big guys. And yeah. when, when those guys have weak balance sheets, then what does that say for the guys downstream? And it's interesting that, you know, a great many regional banks, small uh, banks are off the list. It's the big boys. They are in huge trouble, and I just wonder to what extent the Federal Reserve is going to bend over backwards to bail these guys out. And, and that's the real uh, telling point as to how quickly or how slowly this thing goes on. Here's our phone number, 888-663-6386, 888-663-6386. It's a Wednesday night, 28th of May with Andrew Goss. He has authored two books, Secret World of Money and Uncle Sam Cook's The Books. My name is Patrick Timpone. Good evening to you. We're here each evening on OneRadioNetwork.com between 7 and 8 o'clock. If you're shy, email Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, once again, you have stated for many years since we've been doing shows together that as long as the Federal Reserve is willing to monetize debt and increase the money supply, which is in the neighborhood of, what, $14 trillion right now, that the, the, the musical chairs will continue to go and that this idea of people running through the streets naked, the sky is falling and it's going to crash you believed is folly is folly because you said you have said there is no where is the profit in that why would they allow the that to happen and, and that makes good sense yeah there's a lot of expense in that i can surely but tell you is it possible oh yes it that is. they the boys have just over overplayed their hand that we could be in some for some really fun if i can use that term indeed yeah really and um you know i suppose that if you're if you're driving an automobile and you're constantly aware of the road and you're watching every little thing, you have your seat belts and your airbags and you have your, you know, curtains and you have your speed limit watched and you don't follow too closely and you don't drive on wet roads and every risk that you can imagine you cover, it's still possible that you're going to get in an accident. But other than that, you can drive pretty fast. And odds are you're not going to get in an accident if you are watching every one of those things that make 
piloting an automobile a full-time job. You know, more likely if you're drinking coffee, you're not paying attention, now the odds of you having an accident are much greater. Hmm. Well, when it comes to the implementation of a regulatory framework, these guys have a virtual chokehold on the money supply. And additionally, as I've pointed out in previous shows, 95% of everything we call money is electronic in nature. Only 5% is printed coin or cash. Translate that into only 5% of the money in existence in terms of U.S. dollars is unknown as to its whereabouts to the Federal Reserve. Say that again, only how much? Only 5% is unknown as to its whereabouts. And they know where the 95% is? Of course they do. It's all electronic. So they've got to know. Yeah, they better know. (laughs) If they don't, then that's a problem in and of itself. But in reality, by knowing the flows, uh, this gives them tools and and, uh, gives them the ability to implement uh, solutions that we haven't even thought of yet or that we've never seen before. And to be fair to those out there predicting doom and gloom, Yes, this is probably the fifth or sixth financial thing that has happened that we have never seen before. Of course, the banks all going negative in the aggregate, as we discussed in their reserves. uh, First time in history. Yeah, inaugural show, first time ever. Uh, The Federal Reserve, of course, granting uh, discount window credit outside of the commercial banks, first time ever. To investment banks as well. Yeah, Uh, so these sorts of firsts, uh, they will continue to roll them out. And as a result, you know, every risk that pops its head up, a corresponding uh, countermeasure will be put into place. Why? Well, because it's profitable. It's a very, very profitable system. And it, it doesn't earn any money when it's not working. So what significance is it that the people you mentioned who are really up to their knickers in this uh, derivative deal in the turn in, in the tuned to 700 trillion Citigroup, JP Morgan. These are all people that are primary owners of the Federal Reserve banks who literally have the power to make money by making money. Making yeah. money by making money, making by, money. By, by creating money out of debt. Mm. Well, that, of course, gives them a rather a bit of a conflicted position as it relates to their own <laughs> existence. While I doubt that uh, if you own the institution that issues the money, you're going to allow your institution to go under. Uh, if you're a part owner, I imagine you're going to get better treatment. Uh, and if the too-big-to-fail doctrine holds true, then it stands to reason that these big banks at the top, that to an accountant would look horrific. And to me, the books look horrific. What I can see here looks horrific. Uh, but at the same time, if the Fed is going to be willing now to infuse huge amounts of capital into these institutions through these swap mechanisms where they're saying, okay, give us your bad paper and then we'll exchange it for good uh, treasury paper, now that creates a, a, you know, takes an asset that was illiquid before for these banks and now gives them an asset that's not only liquid, but able to be leveraged nine to one. That they'll just leverage something else. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, we couldn't do anything. We've already leveraged out this uh, bundle of CDOs and now, you know, it's, it's got a face value of a billion dollars and we're trying to sell it and we can't get a hundred million. 
but yet we take it over to the Fed and they'll give us a billion dollars worth of T-bills. Now we take those billion dollars worth of T-bills, we can make a deposit and bet 10 times that amount that the yen is going to go up or the dollar is going to go down or any one, any combination of the maneuvers that they take. And the, you look at these banks' balance sheets, and they don't make money from taking your deposit in and letting you clear checks. This is all for their reserve functions. In reality, it's the trading arms that gamble in currencies and gamble in commodities and gamble in, in stocks. That's where they make their money. And the Fed has the power to do what you just said, give someone a billion dollars worth of treasury notes that are only worth $100 million explain how they could possibly do that well you know this is one of the things that they're allowed to do they have this huge trove of of treasury bonds and we've discussed this in the past the way that this 14 trillion got into circulation was primarily through the issuance of federal reserve notes as a result of congressional spending so when congress spends a thousand dollars that it doesn't have and their books show that they're $9 trillion plus in debt. So when they spend $1,000 that they don't have, they write a bond out. That bond is directly related to the Federal Reserve banks that snap it up. So if it's, okay, I'll take $100, I'll take $50 through Treasury Direct or, or through a Fed Direct, and what's left over is $850 that nobody wanted to buy, then the Fed takes it. And they create the $850, give it to Congress, and then they hold it in their pile. Now, over the years, they've built quite a pile of these uh, treasury obligations. Those are the instruments that they are now using to exchange with these main banks, and with all investment banks, for what we'll call toxic debt. You know, just bad debt that is in the system. But those treasury obligations are only worth anything because... We the people are paying interest, yep. interest on those on that debt. That's right. Right. We're paying interest. Uh, but they are the highest form of paper in the system. And so as a result, you know, if you are a bank with these billion dollars worth of non-performing capital on your or non-performing loans on your books, and now you've handed those over to the Fed in exchange for an equivalent amount of performing or AAA or the best debt quality on earth. Now your balance sheet goes from not so good to pretty doggone good. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you can start again uh, your system because you have essentially money there, whereas before you had a dubious asset that couldn't be liquid at all. Now, can we say, after reading your newsletter of this last quarter, the end is not near, that similar kinds of things go on much closer to home with someone buying a home and taking out a mortgage. Indeed. Indeed. And, and I think it's really fascinating what you wrote about it, and I'd like to follow the paper trail of, say, a $500,000 home. Can we do that? Because I'm really interested in this promissory note and what happens to it. Take it away. So, uh, let's just say Patrick goes in. Bank of whatever, Dripping Springs or Wells Fargo or Bank of America. I want to buy this home, and it's appraised at five hundred thousand. They give Patrick five hundred thousand to buy the house, and I have a thirty-year note, and I sign a promissory note. I will pay you back so much for the next thirty years, 
And then what happens to that piece of paper, and how, where do they get that $500,000 to give to the, the builder to build this house? Well, as it makes its way up the stream, it winds up in the Federal Reserve Bank's vault, <laughs> especially in light of what we just said. The promissory note? Yes. The actual, the original note? Well, the original note exists on the books of the bank that loaned you the money. All right. Um, it works its way into a chain of aggregators. So you've got uh, inst- institutions like Bear Stearns that say, okay, if you write a mortgage and it fits into this box, then you can sell it to us. We'll buy it from you immediately. And so your local bank would immediately turn that loan around and sell it into that market. Now, they might allow the bank to maintain servicing of the loan for a, a little period, but in reality, uh, that that note now no longer belongs to the Bank of Dripping Springs. And then Patrick begins making his payments to somebody else? Well, you know, this idea of servicing the mortgages is a separate business. Oh, it's another other, business. It so is, you might continue a- to pay Wells Fargo or whoever, the Bank of Dripping Springs, but... In essence, somebody else owns it. And in, in many instances, these banks bought the uh, mortgages f- solely for the purposes of getting the servicing. You know, that's all they wanted to, uh, to have that, to get that money for the servicing of the account. Mm-hmm. And they're willing to turn over the principal immediately, the portion of the principal payment. They're, they also, through these aggregators, so the, the aggregators slice your loan up into these various components. Hey, who wants the servicing? Who wants the principal payment? Who wants the escrow funds? Who wants, et cetera? And then they put a, they bundle the, each component of those mortgages after they're sliced and diced and sell it in staggering amounts in many instances to institutions that are looking to uh, hedge or making a bet. And in many cases, these are the hedge funds that we've talked about. They decide that um, uh, the interest payments on uh, variable rate mortgages are all they want. So they want to buy the interest payments and they pay for that component of the loan. Uh, as far as the aggregator is concerned, they add at each level of the process. And so this is where the funny money or the air gets blown into the deal hmm. where, you know, it, it isn't really worth what they say it's worth. And then all at every step of the process, there are accountants swearing to the, to the value, <laughs> you know, that's what it's worth. And we sign off on it. And so now the numbers all make sense. And, but I've, I've heard these stories about how this, this $500,000 note gets turned into lots and lots and lots of money. Is that true? Well, in it, essence, does it, does it somehow multiply like little rabbits? Yeah. In the derivatives concept, you know, in that I can now make a bet based on the outcome of the market utilizing this mortgage as the instrument. So once I bundle together a million dollars or a billion dollars worth of these things, mm-hmm. then I can sell an, an option hmm. or a contract. I can I can leverage, if you will, the value <laughs> that isn't there. And so this is you know this is how somebody ought to be thinking. How do we get a a five hundred and ninety six trillion dollar derivatives market when there's only you know fourteen trillion dollars in circulation? And this is how we do it, by placing bets. You call it speculation, call it whatever you will. 
but these dollars and these exotic instruments are never ever thought of as something that somebody actually is going to do. I mean, you know, the guy who buys an option to buy $10 billion worth of treasury bonds has no intention of ever getting the $10 billion delivered to him and having to hand over $10 billion. He's just putting up his, you know, $100 million in the hopes that the $10 billion worth of bonds suddenly becomes worth $11 billion. And then he makes a cool $900 million or nine times his client's original money. And why would they they become worth more at some point? Well, as interest rates go up and oh, down, the fa- okay. yeah, the that's what they're down. betting on. Yeah, and so they—that's why these guys only wanted the principal portion of these mortgages, these thirty-year mortgages, because when something is thirty years out, it has a different value. You know, the bond that pays the mortgage that pays six percent, while everyone else is paying twelve percent, is only worth half as much in face value. Conversely, the the bond or the mortgage that pays 6%, while everyone else is paying 3%, why, that's worth more than the face value. So when they structured these hidden uh, instruments that they got a lot of the public to take, you know, these very risky loans that started out at 1% but then ended up at 4 or 5 or 6% at the other end, the face value of that bond, of that mortgage, increases in the markets based on what it yields, and the the derivatives market has, has allowed, if you will, gambling on a scale that you cannot imagine, but with no real intent of the participants to ever take delivery of the uh, vehicles that they're betting on. Boy, it sounds really dicey to me, this whole thing. Oh, whole it's setup. so dicey. It is very, very dicey. Wow. Now, um, then lots of people, more than ever, have been foreclosing California, one of the worst, California property down 30%, and you take the 10 top 20 cities in the country down 20%, just in paper value on these homes. How does do those two things, the increasing number of foreclosures and the loss of paper, just paper value, how does this affect all the guys upstream? Does it affect them at all? Well, you know, those that bought their houses and plan to live in them, that was the whole idea. It doesn't affect them at all. The, the people in the homes. Right. But California was the king of the, um, you know, $1,000 down. I remember when I was out there in 1986, I saw um, a Mercedes with 25-year payment terms. Really? Oh, yeah. You could you could borrow money for 25 years against a Mercedes. So the bank that was doing those deals with the car dealer, uh, it almost like the guy that you're selling that thing to that has to finance it over 25 years has no business buying it. But he wants to drive a Mercedes. And so the million-dollar house that you're selling with a $10,000 town payment, you shouldn't be doing. And especially when you know the payments are 1200 a month in the beginning on a million-dollar house. And then they increase to 5000 maybe two years into the term. Well, so what? So what do we care? We're going to sell it a year out, and we're flipping it. We had TV shows, you know, based on people doing this stuff, and you had entire markets made up of this type of speculation. And look where the levels went on that real estate. It was mind-boggling that, you know, houses would be appreciating at the rate that they were. And it was plain and simply because of all of this excess demand that wasn't real. 
You know, these are not the greater fools theory. These were not people that were going to live in these houses. And that happened in Florida as well. It did. Las Vegas, Arizona, you know, these top 10 markets, all the the hot, you know, the, the booming markets. Now, I'm not in Austin, Texas, but... I bet real estate didn't go down in Austin, Texas. It hasn't gone down much at all. No. It's kind of softened a bit. It's kind of softened but, a bit here in, in uh, the New York metropolitan area, but it's not like it's it's plunged no. because the people that bought here bought based on, I want to move in that house and I want to live in it. Uh, and the people that bought there, same same thing. Now, when you strip out the economic base of an area or when you have an area that was subject to, and in Las Vegas, incidentally, houses were going up at the rate of 30 and 40% per year for the last five years. Housing growth. Oh, no, houses. Yeah, that's the, what I mean, the growth in housing. Uh, the prices. Oh, the prices? The prices were, you know, 30% really? a year was not unreasonable. That's it was huge. It was huge. And it got to where in Las Vegas, just anything, if you bought anything at all and held it for a year, it was automatically worth more. But boy, it's nothing like that now. Is no, it? indeed it isn't. Uh -huh. And so as the bulk of the air gets knocked out of these top 10 markets, what's going to happen is there's going to be a tremendous supply Okay, now I talk to investors every day. I can't tell you how many have already told me, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to look at Las Vegas. I think I'm going to look at Miami. Why? Well, because I hear, in fact, a broker, real estate broker told me that if I buy a condo in Miami for $180,000, that they will give me another one free. Oh, yeah. yeah, buy one, get one free sale on condominiums. Can you imagine that? Yeah. So I can't imagine that. So as this investor now considers, with stronger hands, buying into this weakness, this is what will, of course, snap up all of the existing supply. Now, this is a cause of concern right now. Everybody's saying there's a lot of inventory on the market. Sure there is. Very same way there was in, in 1993. A lot of inventory on the market. Remember the SNL crisis. All the banks had uh, savings and loans had uh, foreclosed on all these properties. And as a result, uh, lost all this money. And as they dumped their real estate onto the market, the price fell dramatically. And there were four sale signs on every other yard. But the Resolution Trust Corporation came along, uh, bought up all of this real estate through their foreclosure process, and put the, the entire pile of debt into the Resolution Trust Corporation. It was about $500 billion on that particular bailout and then they took the real estate and threw it up in the air and said okay whoever wants it buy it and as a result investors swooped in and bought up all that rtc property within 93 94 two years it was all gone and now prices started to rise again because the supply is gone and builders remember there were no builders in 1994 all of the big home builders and all the building trades picked up in 95, 96, 97, 98. And, of course, as it built and built, uh, that is a reverse, uh, an unwinding process that is go we're going through right mm. now. So, so can we say then it, it's almost like a perfect storm scenario when you take the derivatives on the high end, all the, the uh, questionable mortgages that were made, the war in Iraq with lots of money being printed, just lots of things uh, kind of just kind of came together. Is that correct? And, and that's what really we're, what we're really looking at right now. Indeed, and and this is what cause has caused a lot of very serious people to predict the end of the world as we know it. Right. Huh? And I can understand what they're thinking, and and the evidence is there. I mean, it's all over the place. But my argument is that if this only results from inaction or ignorance 
So if this were something that they didn't know about, then I would be worried. But if I can get the information, then I know they can get the information. You see? But they could have known about it and just been in denial or, oh, well, or just cert- too, you know, too much scotch. There's certainly it's both. possible. There's right? a lot of both. Right, possible. But in reality, you have a lot of smart analysts out there who start to say, okay, well, I'm going to assume now that the Federal Reserve is watching this and that they're going to take the necessary steps to put the money in. Now, in reading their minutes from the last meeting and in looking at the remarks made by uh, Bernanke, and I have a great one to share with okay. the audience. Okay. All right. um, in, in looking at their remarks, it's obvious they have their eye on the ball. And do they know about the problem? Well, here's Bernanke's remark. He said, they asked, do, is it possible that the banks are pulling back from their lending because of the recent market turmoil? And his response was, along the lines of, The banks have been very conservative in their lending because they're worried that some of their off-balance sheet liabilities will come on to their balance sheets. How can you have an off-balance sheet liability? If if there's a liability, it's there, isn't it? Precisely. Except that it shows that the chairman is fully aware that the banks have moved, have transferred some of this liability offshore. Imagine, if you will, hmm. where you and me have a bank, and we're trying to get this deal past the accountant. And because the debt, the, the risk of default is not covered, then the accountant won't book it as a deal. There's no way we're going to let you book that million-dollar deal because your lender might default. Okay, here's what we do. You and me, we set up a, sh- a company in the Cayman Islands, and then we have that company accept a premium from the deal, to offset the risk. Now we bring the deal to our own accounts and they, okay, good. Yeah, you have a counterparty there that will uh, make the deal good if the, the thing goes bad. Okay, good. We'll take it now as a good deal. Hmm. Those types of shenanigans are so widespread. You just have to read into the Enron case to find the root of them and then understand that once they see, hey, that's how you do it, it's spread like a virus and it has really gone through this system and those that are driving the bus are fully aware. They're aware that they exist. If you've just tuned in, Andrew Goss uh, painted a very uh, interesting picture about this whole uh, derivatives market and in the tune of $700 trillion. And a lot of this stuff is floating around in different pension funds. How about listeners now who are saying, wait a minute, I have everything that I have, 401ks and all of that, IRAs, that they have a lot of my money in the various pension funds around this country. Should they be concerned right no, now hearing no. this? Here's what they should be more concerned with, okay? Is that the value of their money right now is based on a circulating supply of $14 trillion. In 1995, the circulating supply was around $6 trillion. And in 1980, the circulating supply of money was around $1 trillion. What do you think would happen to the value of your money? You've seen what has happened to it from 1980, when it was $1 trillion, to 2007 or 2008, when it's $14 trillion. What do you think would happen to the value of your money if it now increased another 1,400%? If the supply of notes went from where it is now at $14 trillion to something north of $100 trillion. Is that possible? It's very possible. 
indeed, if in fact we bear just the bulk of the present numbers, the 44 or 45 trillion that appears to be desperately needed right now. Uh, we'll take our eye off of the 596 or 600 billion dollar, a 600 trillion dollar derivatives market for just a minute and focus on what we know, consumer debt, credit card debt, mortgage debt, and government spending. Remember, President Bush's budget was $3 trillion this year. Three. When you add what we know into the into the picture, you get that $40, $45 trillion number. Again, only $14 trillion to pay it. So what if we only triple the supply of money? Would that be enough? Probably. But the possibility exists that this problem is much bigger than 45 will solve. And maybe they're going to have to pump the money presses for the next three to five years at a rate that will just deplete all of the value of the dollar. So, so what you're saying is, is that they, the people that control this game, will devalue the dollar more by creating up to two or three times more than are out there right now just to keep the, the music playing. Exactly. And, and so people don't run out of chairs with musical chairs. That's right. And then the value of the dollar will could then decrease by another... Uh, what seventy percent or a hundred percent or yeah, and this is where you get that okay, is that's huge. This is where we get two hundred dollar a barrel oil. That's where we get that from. We don't get it from shortages of oil. Uh, we get it from too much money. Too much money. Yeah. And more and more people are beginning to come around to what you've been talking about for a couple of years. You're hearing it more and more. Uh, with each passing week, it gets more play. That the value of the dollar is is really key here with the uh, price of gasoline. Yeah, I heard him talking today about the Fed intervening to strengthen the dollar. Now, how can you do that? Well, the Fed has plenty of tools to strengthen the dollar. They could start raising interest rates. They could start. Uh, they could start by raising interest rates. They would end by uh, raising uh, long-term interest rates. Yeah. But then does that slow everything down? Yeah. I mean, doesn't that just slow everything down? That's the choice the Fed has right well, now. Well, they don't they, want to do that, They though. either strengthen the dollar or they kill the economy. That's the choice. Those aren't very good choices. No, but which one do you think they'll pick? I think they'll pick don't kill the economy. <laughs> they're just so they're gonna, you'll, you'll think they'll pick just to create more money. That's all they got to do. There's mm-hmm. no way they're going to strengthen the dollar. Because by strengthening the dollar, they will kill the. Give economy. us some of the scenarios of the bullet points of what happens if they raise interest rates to strengthen the dollar. Well, the Fed would move like this on the open market committee. Uh, they would be out in force, uh, taking in dollars in exchange for Treasury bonds. So each day at their desk, they would be offering Treasury bonds for sale and soaking dollars current money out of checking accounts, savings accounts, pension funds, you know, money managers, everyone with dollars to spend would be buying bonds from the Fed, about the opposite of what they're doing now. They would buy a bond, so they're going to get interest on that money they gave them for the next 10 years. Well, instead of the Fed getting it, the person that handed the money over is going to get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the Fed then destroys or takes out of circulation the corresponding amount of Federal Reserve notes. They just... Wipe them off the computer. Wipe them off the book. Yeah. And so now that reduces the supply of money in circulation, thereby strengthening the dollar. 
And then what happens? Joe can't borrow a nickel because everybody's loaning their money to the Fed. So then housing goes... Yeah, forget that. Housing goes in, business uh, goes... Contraction. Contraction because they can't get money Or they to buy say, equipment. okay, well, look, you know what, man? The Fed's offering these bonds up at 6% over here. If you want it, you can have it for 8%. And that's essentially what happens. Interest rates now start to rise based on demand. And the Fed is not pumping the money supply, but rather contracting the money supply, which is really what it's supposed to do in its own definition. You know, when it when all of that stuff was going on, that's when they should have been raising interest rates. Alan Greenspan sold out politically to get this president reelected. And so by making the economy much better than it should have been at a time when he should have been contracting and, and pulling money out and not allowing those uh, very speculative loans, that would have righted the ship. That's the, supposed to be the job of the Fed, you know, lean against the wind. So you remember when, when the economy was booming, when building was every building, 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 building. That's when the Fed should have been tightening interest rates. But Not, they were just doing the opposite. Yeah, because, you know, we had an election. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. one of the other reasons that it's given for making them autonomous and independent is so that they won't be effect, affected by political considerations. But it, history will show that Mr. Greenspan absolutely used his uh, political influence in making that um, stimulation, if you will, much greater than it should have been, uh, enough to get a president reelected. He's the author of The Secret World of Money and Uncle Sam Cooks the Books, and you're going to have an opportunity to get yourself both of those books as well as some other bonus items when you join up OneRadioNetwork.com, and we're going to launch that in the next couple of days with... Over 150 interviews available for you to download, listen to at your leisure. Or leisure. My name is Patrick Timpone. It is 43 minutes after the hour. Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. If you have an email question, I have a couple that I'm going to get to. But I want to get back uh, before I lose it. If the Fed would choose the path which you think they are not going to choose to strengthen the dollar, dollar excuse me, that would then... Bring on a depression. Bring, but but would, the price of oil would come down. Yeah. Right? Because yeah, the price of everything would come Because the Saudis down. would get more of a buck for their buck. Oh, you bet it would, yeah. Not only would the price of oil come down, the price of everything would come down. Real estate would fall by another 20, 30, maybe 40%. I mean, you could end up wiping a zero off of every asset. The cash would be king then. Right. And debtors would be, I mean, foreclosed upon. And this is the scenario that uh, I suppose many would view as the ultimate uh, end game or, you know, the win, if you will. Well, yeah, a lot of the folks in the patriot movement yes. think this is going to happen. Yeah, because you have every American strapped and up against the wall and unable to pay their bills and upside down and, you know, can't sell any assets and completely dependent upon whatever uh, anybody would give them. But as you have said, where is the where is the profit in that? Somebody show me. If there's a way to make money from that, then I'll listen to that maybe is a possibility. But every every interpretation I make of that data suggests that nothing works. Nothing gets done. No one makes any money. And you know, having control over a person with by means of slavery has been tried for hundreds of years and it didn't work out that well. It's much better to let them go think they're free 
and they'll keep sending their checks in every month. So Gary does email from Florida. He says, so let me see if I understand what you're saying. I have everything in my 401ks, my IRAs, which I hope to start using in the next three or four years. To, am, I, am I safe just to leave them where they are right now? I mean, of course, you don't know where they've got all this money invested. It's a tough right. question, but just a general question. Yeah, when you say in a 401k, really understand that that's just the alter ego of you that gets specialized tax treatment so that when you're putting money into that instrument, you're not taxed upon it. And you're only taxed then when you pull it out. But he has no control where that money is being invested into, does he? In most cases that you do not. So your options are very limited and they're, oh, so painful. Option one is you cash out, take all the money out and count it as taxable income in that year and then make alternative investments on your own. That would be very painful. Oh, it's it's humongous. The the totals are, uh, well... Uh, but, you know, I have a, one gambler friend of mine that says, first loss is your best loss. You know, take your loss and get out. So I understand the logic of doing that, even though you know it's a big hit. Because then you can make moves to to get your assets into areas that are protected. And, you know, there are those are going to be obvious. They're all of the material wealth. Uh, you notice, for example, these private equity groups are buying up uh, tur- turnpike and parkway concessions throughout the country. They're buying utilities they're buying again physical tangible uh, productive assets and these are what you should be buying the last thing that a, a person's 401k money should be invested in are debt instruments treasury bonds municipal bonds <laughs> uh, collateralized debt obligations debt swaps you know forget all of that if if that's what's made up of your, your 401k is made up of why then yeah take that lump get the money out and save whatever you can but the second option available to some, and I don't, you know, again, I'm not an expert in that area, but I understand you can borrow against your 401k, in which case you can uh, take your money out and hedge against uh, these occurrences. Is it possible to direct the 401k investments into uh, whatever REITs or real estate investment trusts or commodities or the exchange-traded funds like gold or silver or things yeah, like that? some do allow that. I've seen, in fact, uh, the Government Employees Fund, for example, uh, gives you an option of, of choosing a, an investment class. You know, you can say, okay, I want only treasury bonds or I want only common stocks or I want only uh, whatever the third option is. But you cannot direct it any further than that. But let me, let me see if I'm clear. So, but you are that concerned about uh, the investment portfolio being invested in paper or debt, Debt. all these municipal bonds and all these things that that you would actually uh, caution someone to possibly really seriously consider taking the loss, taking the tax loss and getting out of those things because you're that concerned about them in the the next five years. Indeed I am. In fact, and and not being an expert in bonds, remember, I'm an expert in the underlying basis of money. I went right to the root, which is the gold and silver coin that is at the bottom of all this, at the foundation. That's what I do. And so that's the instrument that I'm most comfortable with. When I get all the way up on the other end of the scale and recognize that, hey, this million-dollar bond can be paid off with a million dollars of notes at any time in the next 20 or 30 years or at the end of that term if the issuer desires. You know, these people accept that, okay, I just bought a 30-year Fannie Mae bond. 
and it says that I've loaned them my money for 30 years. But my broker says tomorrow I can sell it. And so it's liquid. Tomorrow I can just sell that bond and get the money out. Well, that's today. And in, a, in an environment where um, uh, cash is king, if you will, or uh, money's tight, that Fannie Mae bond could be paid off with dollars that are worth 20 cents mm-hmm. or, or 15 cents mm-hmm. uh, in face value. Email from Joy in Austin. Andrew, enjoy the show. Uh, and can you tell me, am I, am I going to get all my Social Security money? I, I'm going to retire in the next few years. Yeah, probably. Yeah, no question about it. If you're, if you're expecting Social Security, there's no chance that they are going to uh, restrict or limit Social Security. In fact, uh, I would see a COLA adjustment based more closely on the actual inflation rate as opposed to this phony, you know, 1% and 2% annual inflation that they give us. So if you're a Social Security recipient now, you're going to get your payments. And if you're relying on Social Security as your uh, retirement coming very quickly, you're going to get paid. The The idea that they're not going to uh, pay you is absurd. There isn't a politician on Capitol Hill that would vote to stop Social Security payments. Mm-hmm. You had alluded to at one point, though, Mr. Goss, that you, you we may see a day where there's going to be... Means testing. Means testing. Tell us what that means. Well, uh, you know, <laughs> quite simply, look, you've you've worked hard, you've saved more money than you ever could need, and so you don't need Social Security. Leave that for the people that weren't so lucky, or maybe you don't need the extra prescription drug benefit, or maybe you don't need a portion of the medical coverage provided. And so this idea of means testing, much the same way as it happens now uh, with certain insurances. But they could actually legally do that? Sure, they do it now. Legalism. Yeah, they do it now. Do they? Well, yeah, if you have a lot of money, you can't get free medical care. I'm sure you've heard people say it before. If you have no money at all and you mm. need medical care, you're going to get some. But if you have a little bit of money, then you have to spend all of it before you get any help at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really, I think, going to be more the rule than the exception. Uh, the idea that it, this is anything other than insurance against uh, uh, your proper planning will be what the next generation views Social Security as. So, you know, if I fail completely in my life and don't save any money at all, then I can always eat on Social Security. Uh, whereas the generation that's retiring now, a great many of them were fooled into believing that they could actually live on Social Security. And the, and, the, and at the time, it seemed like a reasonable idea. Sure, let's go right? back to 1967. Sure, I'll tell you, look, sure. when you retire in 2000, we're going to pay you, now get ready for this, hold on to your hats, $600 a month. That probably seemed like... What do I need anything else for? Yeah, apartment for three hundred. Three hundred. Where were you living in '67? I don't even remember. Holy what? cow! Two hundred. You know, maybe a hundred and a quarter. Really? That, oh, that, that yeah. Low? Yeah, maybe we get somebody to email us what rent was in 1967. I don't remember. I was I in remember. the service. I don't cheap, remember. Yeah. yeah, it was cheap. Just like, you know, a dollar and a quarter an hour, I think, was minimum wage mm-hmm. or 85 cents, something like that. And so that sounded like a lot of money. And when a lot of these uh, boomers were getting their statements four or five years ago that showed when they retired, you know, they're going to be getting 28 or 2900 a month, whatever that number might have been. Hey, it probably looked like a lot of money. And just now, just in the last five years, it seemed like a lot less. <laughs> well, and, and if you're at all correct, I mean, even if you're only 20% correct about how much new money is going to have to go into 
circulation to to, to you know to, to make sure the game keeps dancing yeah. i think the, uh, the so technical the, the, number the, is a lot there's a lot <laughs> a lot <laughs> that, that two that three thousand dollars a month is just uh, yeah it's just not going to do not it going to do anything and really. and for a great many it will be subsistence but again i think it's so unfair that this is the generation and it, it only fits with the how sneaky these guys are you know this is the generation that's the biggest uh, by the time we reach 2012 we'll have 85 million americans retired you know and, really? And, yeah. What? How many are we now? What is it like? Three hundred? How many now? Yeah. I think we're something uh, north of thirty now. Thirty million. Million. Yeah. And in in four years, it's going to double. Yeah, it's going to crest. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's the everyone born after the the soldiers came back in nineteen forty five from World War Two, right? right? Started having babies, two and three of them, mm-hmm. and that lasted right up until you know fifty nine, sixty, like that. Right. And so that population, and then after that, naturally families got smaller, and we all know the demographics here. But this graying of America is hitting us between now. The first of these boomers just retired, right? You know, add your 62 years, and you've got, you're right there. You know, 65 years to where we are uh, puts us at, you know, 2009, 2010. And so just a tremendous amount of money is going to have to come into existence. We're going to have to birth a lot of dollars to, yep. to pay this uh, pay this tab. Yeah. Yeah, the, the crest comes around 2012. And with, you know, two people retired for every one person working, the burden is going to be enormous on that generation. So the only way to pay for it, I doubt if they're going to sit still for, you know, doubling and tripling and quadrupling the payroll tax in order to pay for the two retirees. So that only leaves the government with the option of monetizing that particular payment and allowing the tax payments of working Americans to go into all the other stuff like, you know, wars and bombs and things of that nature. So it, it's really a, a catch-22 or a double hit on people mm. because they're, the dollars that they're earning are just keep getting worth less and less. Right. And they have to Well, keep... this is the worst part of oh, it, Patrick. Just, you think yeah. about the boomers have already... I mean, these are people that are already mid-60s, right? I mean, early 60s, late 50s. They've already exchanged all of their productive wealth for this fixed quantity of dollars. They can't go back and renegotiate. It's done for them. The new generation coming up can demand higher wages, but we've already made our trade, and we've put this money now representing our labor into these accounts that we now hope to go into and and fund our existence. And that's the real sad part, is that the money just won't last long enough for many. Mm -hmm. Well, uh... This is something that's going on all over the world. There's, um, right? I mean, this is this is not unique to this country. What we're talking about now, you could have this talk show virtually anywhere in the world right now, couldn't you? Indeed, you could. Although, to be fair, um, you know, we've led the way in these. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, in these yeah. we're leading the way. We are leading the way, and and a great many um, uh, European countries, for example, shun the attitude. The French still store their wealth in assets like gold that are not um, someone else's liability. You know, that's the key. And we here in the United States are willing to store our wealth in someone else's liability as opposed to in real tangible value. And that's something I just cannot understand how, you know, your asset is someone else's liability. And and so you're relying upon them doing what they have to do in order for you to get paid. Uh, my goodness, that uh, I'm not. 
I'm not purely cynical, but boy, that's not a smart way to go. And certainly reading a lot about people, just companies raising their prices, haven't you? Dow just announced what a huge uh, price increase on everything, like 20%. And I saw a program on the farming industry where the fertilizer, seed, and gas costs has been, if you combine those together, is like up 200%. And truckers having to pay like a 1000 bucks to fill up. To fill up, yeah. yeah you know. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting out there. Yeah, and that's what's going to continue to happen, these price increases. Now, if you recall that period in the 70s, we had stagflation. You remember that? With the stagnant economy and higher prices. Uh, the article, the piece that I wrote on it was probably a little early, but it's called The Ultimate 70s Retrograde. You can find it in the library, mm-hmm. and it deals with exactly this issue, uh, stagflation, uh, something that we haven't seen for 30 years, and but a great many may remember, where you have slow economic growth and rising prices, so it's like a double insult. I note, that, however, that um, um, durable goods orders are up 12%, so man, 3% year over year. And, and that shows that at least we're still buying stuff, so uh, we're not in recession just yet. And with the dollar being so weak, I mean, our goods are more attractive to people around the world. You right? bet, yeah. yeah. And, and our agricultural uh, sector is producing full steam ahead, as is our intellectual property uh, sector. You know, uh, movies, music, and uh, things of that nature. Well, we'll just end on a little kind of privacy or, or freedom note. A $1 billion lawsuit against YouTube. Uh, did you hear about this? Sure. Yeah. Well, what's the deal on that? Viacom is, is suing yeah, YouTube? Yeah. Well, because, listen, if you want to create <laughs> something and it's original and you put it up on YouTube, that's fine. YouTube is not for you to go steal someone else's work and post it for free. And that's going on a and lot. That, yeah, that's, and that's not right. So if you want to create something and be productive and put something on YouTube, hey, I say go for it. But if you're going to steal someone else's work and then put it up there, I don't think that should be allowed either. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, maybe I'm not radical enough for some of those free people, but when they call them freegans, everything should be free. Yeah. But you're never going to get anyone to create intellectual property unless you allow them to be compensated. Are you fairly confident that the Internet is going to remain a free market kind of thing in the next three, four, five years? Are you serious? No. <laughs> not a chance. Come on, what's going to happen? What do you well, mean? Well, the same encroachment will occur on the Internet. And, what know, are they going to do? Chip by chip by chip by little chip, chip, chip. They chip away at the anonymity and the freedom. Taxes? Well, I don't know about taxes, but um, the idea that, that this is some big anonymous pool, I think, will quickly go out the window. So you think we still must operate at the idea that there are no secrets. Everybody knows what you're doing anyway. Yeah. So you might as well try to stay on the up and up as much as you can. Exactly. (laughs) Stay on the up and up and take advantage of the system. That's the purpose of this show, is to really teach you that if you understand how it works, then just play by these rules and you'll be fine. And yeah, just know what's going on and act accordingly, right? Yeah, don't show up for a football game with your baseball outfit. <laughs> there you go. All right, Mr. Goss, it's always a pleasure. Boy, that flew right by. We learned a lot tonight. Thanks. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see you Saturday afternoon between 3 and 5 o'clock Central for the special Saturday edition of The Real World of Money. Andrew, have a pleasant evening in Mr. Jersey, New Jersey. And we'll see you real soon. So. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Andrew Goss and The Real World of Money. This will be on... One radio network, oh, in probably half an hour or so, so you can send it to your friends and they can learn all about it. We are going to talk with Dr. Browner, a Browner, 
Mr. Browner of Browner Soaps, who's an amazing guy, he took a bunch of people to court to just to keep hemp being uh, able to deliver to this country and all kinds of things. And then Friday night, Dr. William Wong, and he's a wild guy, at 7 o'clock. Patrick Timpone, thanks for joining us. Take care. Know the Source on One Radio Network.